0: Welcome to a moment of science, please. I'm one of your hosts, Anna.
1: And I'm Jessica, your second host.
0: Today, we have a Dr. Amy Ramsey on our podcast, who is a professor assistant in the faculty of PharmaTalks. Welcome, Dr. Ramsey.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, to start with, if you could please introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit more about you and your background and education and what really interests you about the field of neuropharmacology.
2: Sure. Uh, So I um, got my bachelor's degree in microbiology at the University of Kentucky. And um, I'm an American. I guess I should say that first, that even though I'm living here in Canada and I've lived here for 12 years, I was born and raised in the United States. Um, I grew up in Ohio and then went to Kentucky for my bachelor's degree. At the time, I was really interested in genetics and the closest I could get to a degree in genetics was a degree in microbiology because that's where a lot of uh, genetics was um, discovered. So then I did my... um, graduate training at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in genetics and molecular biology. So I got my PhD there. And then after that, I did my postdoctoral training um, at Duke University working with Mark Carone. And uh, his lab is, is really where I got my training in neuropharmacology. And so then after doing my postdoctoral work, I got my position here at the University of Toronto, and I've been here in the uh, Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology for the past 12 years. And uh, my interest in neuropharmacology, I think sprang out of my interest in the brain. And uh, you know, I, one of the things that's really interesting about drugs that affect the brain is that we can really see how much of our personality can change depending on <clears throat> a medication. So there are medications that can, um, you know, make you sleepy when you're not. Otherwise they can make you wake up when you would rather be sleeping. Um, they can, you know, cause you to panic. They can take away all of your fear. Um, they can make you sad. They can make you happy. And and I, I think it's really, you um, it's really amazing when you can go from being in a very bad place, like having a depression and then moving to a place where you have a much more healthy emotional regulation. So, um, this is, it's a, it's a very powerful thing. Um, you know, drugs that affect the brain are, are of course, very interesting and show us, um, what is possible, what is possible for the brain?
1: That sounds awesome. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your story. So our second question focuses a little bit more on your research. Um, So your research focuses on the NMDA receptor, which regulates the formation and maintenance of synaptic connections between neurons. How did you end up specializing in NMDA receptor biology in the midst of such a vast field as
2: neuropharmacology? Um. Well, the the simple answer to that is that when I was a graduate student um, over 20 years ago, um, I was working on a a project, making a mouse that had changes in its NMDA receptor. And the reason why this was interesting to us is, is because, as you said, the NMDA receptor is really at the heart of what makes neurons interesting and in the sense that they can change after experience. They're not the same cell that they were before. And and to be able to change with experience and grow and the fact that the brain is never the same, you know, from one day to the next, we're continuing to change who we are, how we think, uh, all of our experiences at the heart of that really is the NMDA receptor. So Once we had the ability to make mice that could carry specific mutations, one of the first ones that people wanted to study what were the genes that encoded the NMDA receptor. So really early on in making genetically modified mice, people were making mice that uh, had mutations in the NMDA receptor. And I was making a mouse that, that had a mutation. And along the way, uh, we learned a lot from making that mice and, and how that might feed into um, some of the disease states that uh, we now know NMDA receptors are important in these disease states. So at the time, I think we knew NMDA receptors were really important in learning and memory and, and development. Um, but I don't think we appreciated at the time how important they are in some diseases like schizophrenia and autism. And so making those mice, that that really helped us start moving in those direction and looking at those diseases through the lens of the NMDA receptor.
0: Thank you for bringing the po- interesting point about how we our brains is constantly changing and the importance of NMDA receptor in our lives. So. One of your most recent research paper in which you were co-author is titled Consequences of NMDA Receptor Deficiency Can Be Reduced Risk in the Adult Brain. Could you give us a little bit summary as what uh, your research focused on and why you decided to explore this relationship?
2: Sure. Um, Okay, again, we have to go back to when I was a graduate student. So that was apparently a really formative time in my life. But when I was a graduate student, I made a mouse and it had low levels of NMDA receptors. And it was was viable, it could live, but it had a lot of cognitive impairments. There were a lot of brain functions that were disturbed. And it's, it's actually not surprising. Now that we know so much about the NMDA receptor and its role in how the brain wires together and how it learns, of course, these mice would have problems in all kinds of domains of learning and memory and emotion and uh, even different sensory systems. So we, we wondered you know, whether we could fix these problems. And that's really important for people who have diseases that you know are due to changes in the NMDA receptor. And, and an example of that, you know, we were thinking of schizophrenia originally or autism. Um, now we know that there, there are actually individuals who have very rare mutations in these genes. And as a result, they have a neurodevelopmental disorder called GRIN disorder. And and GRIN is the name of the gene that encodes uh, the the NMDA receptor. So people who have these mutations, they have uh, really debilitating symptoms. People who have autism or schizophrenia, they have really debilitating symptoms. And the question is whether we can reverse that once it gets diagnosed, because a lot of the problems could be originating from this very early uh, development. Um, So what we wanted to know was whether we could reverse the cognitive impairments, uh, you know, by reversing the genetic problem in adult mice. And so that's what we did. We made mice that had a mutation, and then we could go in and restore the gene back to the way it should be. And, and then we look to see if we did this in adult mice, could we fix their cognitive problems? Could we fix um, you know, some of their emotional problems? And, and so uh, the answer was really surprising. A lot of things could be normalized, even, even if you have a mouse that's, that's developed from the moment of conception with very low levels of NMDA receptors, you could restore the brain function uh, just by fixing the problem in an adult brain. So that's that's a huge, huge discovery and, and really hopeful for, um, for those people who have these disorders to know that, you know, once we find the right medicine or the right therapy, their brains have enough plasticity that they can change and improve with the right treatment.
0: The funding of your research paper is so fascinating. How small things can change a huge like person's personality or like how he thinks, it's really impressive. Thank
2: you. Yeah, sure, I agree. It it was stunning to to me to see. um, It is. To see the mouse get better. To see the mouse get better because I had been working with these mice for 20 years and could, you know, I was used to handling these mice. They have a lot of problems. And then to see that when we did this one change to their gene, they got better. And, and that yeah, that was very exciting to see. It's really
1: impressive. Thank you. <laughs> it's so cool that you worked so early with such amazing things, like in your PhD, you, that set up the rest of your career. So it's really nice. Um, I was very lucky. Yeah. Um, So for our next question, we wanted to talk a little bit about limitations of studies. So almost all studies have possible limitations, and therefore their results should be interpreted quite carefully. Can you talk about some of the possible limitations of the study and how they can be accounted for in the future?
2: Yeah, well, all of my work is with mice. So I think the the biggest limitation is always going to be that um, things don't always translate between mice and humans. And I think there's lots of stories of situations where, you know, we've found medicines that work in mice and we've cured lots of diseases in mice, but that doesn't always mean that we can cure them in, in humans. And so I would say that's the biggest limitation. There's lots of ways that we're trying to improve that. Um, you know it, it's very difficult when you don't know the reason for the disease to be confident that your model is the best model. And so for things like schizophrenia or autism in, in a very those are very vague diagnoses. they it it can be due to many different causes, some, environmental, some genetic, some a combination of environments and genetics. And so you know there's there if if you just study one model and you find a medicine that makes that model better, doesn't mean that's going to translate to the very diverse clinical group that get all gets this diagnosis of of schizophrenia or autism. When you start talking about genetic diseases where you know the exact misspelling that led to the disease, then I think you can be more confident that, well, at least we're going to make the same misspelling in a mouse and and you know, we'll be able to find a medicine that will make the mouse better. If there's a good chance that it could make the patient better. Um, so I think that we've had more success in those situations than we have where we don't really know the reason for the disease in the first place.
0: Yeah, a mouse model is not always applicable to the human that is really, um, and it's like require more attention when you work with such a complex organ such as brain, which is like amazingly like complex organ yes right
2: yeah i think that that um you know mice and humans we we might be very similar in our in our um cardiac system or in you know our um autonomic nervous system but when you get up to the to the you know uh, cortex and to a lot of this higher um reasoning there of course there's a lot of differences and um, and so it's not, it, it's really not that surprising that it would be difficult, and and there's always a tension when you're working with animals. It's it's tough to work with sentient creatures, you know. It's and the closer the more sentient they are, the more um, difficult it is to do those studies. So I think. Um, the scientific community has kind of agreed to work on uh, animals that are kind of just complex enough that they can approximate the the human brain, but not so close to humans that there are, you know, really difficult ethical decisions to be made. Mm
0: -hmm. Really interesting. In your 2020 paper, A Role of endothelial NNDA NMDA Receptors in the Part of Physiology of Schizophrenia, this review showed that non-excitable NMDA-containing cells can potentially contribute to the development of schizophrenia. Could you please explain the significance of this finding?
2: Okay, sure. So, um, so one of the things that's really interesting is that if you... Take a healthy brain, healthy person, and you give them a drug that will block their NMDA receptors, they will experience symptoms that are very similar to schizophrenia and they will behave as if they had schizophrenia. So there is a clear connection between NMDA receptors and the pathophysiology of, of schizophrenia. But when we When we give those drugs, we always think, oh, well, the drugs are are only affecting neurons. And it turns out that NMDA receptors are present on more than just neurons. They're present on um, all the different cells of the brain at much lower levels, including um, the endothelial cells. So the endothelial cells are the cells that make up all the blood vessels. So they are the cells that make the tube that carries the blood, and so you know what are the what are those NMDA receptors doing on those cells, um, and do they play any part in in diseases like schizophrenia? So one of the ideas is that what those NMDA receptors are doing is they are they are serving as little sensors, so they are activated whenever glutamate gets released. And if a neuron is releasing a lot of glutamate, then um, that means it's firing a lot. And if it's firing a lot, it needs a lot of energy. So the, the NMDA receptor could be acting to kind of pick up this change in neuron activity and then adjust what the endothelial cells are doing to send more energy to the brain. So what would an endothelial cell do? It would, it would relax so that the diameter of the blood vessel would get bigger and it would also increase the glucose transporter. So the more glucose transporter there is on those endothelial cells, the more sugar will get into the brain. And those are the, the things that the, that the um, brain needs. It needs sugar, glucose, and it needs oxygen. And, and that it will turn into the ATP that it needs to fire to keep going. So, if your NMDA receptors are blocked, if they're not working, not only are you going to have changes to the neurons, but you might also have problems in your energy delivery. And if you don't have good energy delivery, well, you, your brain isn't going to work properly. I mean, if you've ever been, you know, where you have very low blood sugar, You know that you're not uh, thinking very well. You know it's very hard to do complex math or uh, translate a a language if you if you don't have good blood sugar. And so, our what we wanted to bring up in this review was maybe um, some of the symptoms in schizophrenia are due not only to NMDA receptors in the uh, neurons, but also NMDA receptors in the blood vessels. So that's the, it's, you know, it's really just a pointing out the importance of NMDA receptors in other cells besides the neurons of the brain.
1: Um, that's incredibly interesting. So we're gonna, kind of maneuver to a little bit of a different topic um, in your research. So a lot of your research focuses on the neuropharmacology behind schizophrenia. Currently, there exists only medication to alleviate the symptoms of schizophrenia. Do you see a potential quote-unquote cure for schizophrenia in the foreseeable future? Um, So more of like a broad span question and thinking about whether the fact that schizophrenia and the diseases that you're studying present themselves on a spectrum. So if there ever really would be a cure for
2: that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I think when I'm teaching this, uh, when I'm teaching neuropharmacology to undergrads, I think they're very sad to hear that for most brain diseases, there isn't a cure. It's very distressing to learn that you know none of these brain diseases have cures we only have treatments so i mean i think unless you're talking about you know a malformation that a, a surgery could could treat most things are 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 not cures but are but are just treatments so this isn't unique to schizophrenia or um to um autism and i think that the, what? So what is a cure? It's a, it's a permanent treatment that you would do one time and the, and the brain would be healthy again, right? Um, I'm not sure about that. It's, it, it, the only way that I could imagine that is, is if we get to the point where, you know, for every person, we know exactly what the, what the problem is. And we design the just right treatment and deliver the just right treatment for that person. So it's really, it would be very personalized medicine and what probably have to be some kind of gene therapy, something that would be lasting and enduring um, for the rest of that person's life. So I think that, that that's a very challenging thing, but, but again, most human diseases are not cured. They're, they're just managed. So unless you, I don't know, maybe some infectious diseases, you could say they're cured, but I mean, do you ever completely eliminate every bacterium in your body when you treat it with the antibiotic? Probably not. I mean, do you ever completely eliminate every virus particle when, you know, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say you've completely cured someone. So, you know, That's a hard, that's a, that's a pretty tall order there.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully at least in the future, more people are treated for their symptoms a little
2: more More effectively. effectively. Absolutely. I think that that is something that patients should demand and should, we should all be working for and, and we all want to do. So I think that's a very reasonable hope and, you know, science is moving so quickly even gene therapy is moving very quickly and I've been very. really astounded to see. So, you know, it, it's, it's happening it, and it, there's reason to be hopeful, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Thank you for answering for this challenging question. So we have one more challenging question. Okay. Others. So as your love work with brain disorders such as schizophrenia and autism, What limitation do you run into when conducting a clinical research?
2: Well, when I mean, when I think of clinical research, I think of humans and and since I'm working with mice, I guess I would call that more preclinical. The challenge with working with humans in diseases like schizophrenia or autism, I think the challenge is knowing what are the, the endpoints that we should be measuring to know whether a drug is working or not. Um, I think that is the hardest thing when you're doing anything with the brain, being able to measure it in a very exact and precise way that gives you a number. So, you know, it's very hard to say their memory went from 359 to 473, you know, it's not like that. You can't, you can say that there's a qualitative change, but it's very hard to put numbers on things. And so I think that that's just a challenge for a lot of, a lot of um, clinical research about the brain is, is coming up with measurements that um, are, are precise and numerical and robust and reliable and they're this done the same way from this hospital to this hospital. So the, the challenges in working with um, preclinical models, again, is just also are we looking at the right things? Because there is very hard to find measures in mice that are exactly the same as the measures in humans. So um, you know, in grin disorder, many of the children are nonverbal um, But how do we measure that in mice? You know, or in in schizophrenia, one of the big symptoms is uh, having hallucinations. How would you measure hallucination in a mouse? It's not it's just not possible. So um, I, I think again, it's it's all about what you choose to measure that that's the biggest, I think challenge is finding the right measures for to determine whether you're successful in what you're trying to do.
0: I would say that is really unexpected answer that we receive, but it's really interesting to know that it's like this that the effect of your research is really hard to like hard to measure. It's
2: really interesting. Yeah, that's true. I guess that yeah, maybe that is surprising too. But this is this is what I'm grappling with right now. That's what I'm grappling with right now. Yeah.
1: Um. So we'll move on into our last two questions. So they're a little bit more laid back. Um. And just a little heads up. Sometimes it does glitch a little bit for me the screen. So I did try to like close all my tabs and stuff. But just in case it does that. Um, please just like message me in the chat. Okay. Um, but for our question, we have um, one that's going to be helpful to undergrad students, um, or any students that want to pursue research in labs and are looking into research over the summer. So do you have any tips for or advice for students that are interested in pursuing research? Hmm. It's, it's a great
2: question. And I'm you know, I think the thing that's really frustrating for students, and I I understand this, is that at the point where you are as a student, everything is equally interesting. It's very rare that you have an enduring passion that you've discovered since you were seven on lysosomal storage diseases, you know, like it's just... You're, you're, you're just at the beginning of your um, career of your path, and it will be a while before you find the thing that you love that that gives you purpose that you are excited to go into the lab to find out the answer. So I think that. what you should be looking for in your first experiences, you should be looking for an environment that is appropriate for an undergrad. There are some labs that are great labs for undergrads. Um, and some of this is going to be through word of mouth. but if if you know you' you're just going to have to do a little homework and find out where are the undergrads going. Um, where, where are they getting placed? And did they have a good experience or not? So I think that talking to other undergrads, maybe ones that are a year or two older than you, would be really helpful to find out just where can I get a good experience? You want to know, does this suit me? Is this, um, is this lifestyle something that I would like that fits with, with who I am? And and then, as you as you learn more and more, you might decide, oh, I really want to work with patients. I want to work in a clinical lab, or I really like working with cells and, and proteins and DNA, and or I really like studying the brain, and I like um, working with animals and and watch how they make decisions, and you know, uh, watch them behave, and and you know how a drug might change their behavior. So. Um, I think the first thing is just trying to get some understanding of what the lifestyle is and what kind of character traits, you know, you would need. There's not any one perfect profile for a scientist. I think there's lots of different profiles. And I think that, that you look for the one that suits your personality. So, I I can't I can't give more than that, except just maybe try and know yourself a little bit and um and figure out what what type of environment works best for you? Do you need a lot of people? Do you need um to kind of be off on your own, being quiet? Um, do you, you know, do you like meeting patients and interacting with patients or do you love just going on the internet and doing searches and you know digging through data and, and there's all types of science out there so yeah, I think the other challenging thing is just that research opportunities are, are still hard to find and it requires a certain amount of resilience to be okay with getting a no that it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means, okay, you know, they don't have space, or this person doesn't have the resources to train me right now. But, um, you know, I think eventually most people find some experience, and then once you get your foot in the door, that will lead to other experiences. So there's just a certain amount of persistence that that students need to have to get in the door. And then, um, and then they can go from there to figure out what works best for them.
1: Thank you. That was a really thorough answer. <laughs> Maybe more
2: than you wanted to
1: know. <laughs> no, no, it was really good. I'm sure it's going to be really helpful. Um, and then for our last question, we wanted to finish off our podcast with a fun question um, that is asked to all of our guest speakers. And that is, who is your favorite scientist and why?
2: Okay. Okay. Um, I would never say one person. So I'm going to give you a lot. Okay. First of all, my husband is a scientist. So I have to say him. Okay. My husband, Ali Salipour. I love his science. Um, I probably fell in love with his mind. You know, he's very smart. And, um, you know, I think he's doing great work. Um, locally, I'm also a big fan of Sheena Jocelyn. She's at uh, University of Toronto and at Sick Kids um, Hospital. And I think that she designs amazing experiments to answer really difficult questions. So I like her experimental design. Um, going back in history, I think I was raised on stories of, uh, Marie Curie and Louis Pasteur. So I, I, you know, those were the, those were my heroes growing up. And I think Marie Curie, I liked, um, I liked the fact that she family was very important to her. She was very close to her father and her sister and, of course, she married, and she it was very important for her to be a good mother as well as being an amazing scientist. I mean, she got two Nobel prizes. She, amazing woman, very you know, brilliant woman. And um, Louis Pasteur, um, you know, I, I think he's he's done amazing things for for humanity. So um, another person that I that I is really a more recent hero of mine is a scientist named Stanley Crook. Now, uh, he uh, was the founder and CEO of a biotech company called Ionis. And then um, last year, he quit his uh, position in order to set up a foundation. And this foundation's goal is to treat people with rare diseases and so he has raised all of this money, and he's convinced all of these people to donate their um, their expertise and their uh, resources, so that um, people with rare diseases can be treated. Um, because he says, you know, um, there's there are no pharmaceutical companies that can do this. Um, there are some diseases where there's only a few people on the planet that have any one genetic mutation, right? And so their, their only hope is, is his model. And, and the model is that people apply with their doctor and they say, this is my genetic disease and this is what we know about it, can you help me? And then they the foundation puts a panel together, they look and, and see, can this person, can we help this person? Uh, with antisense oligonucleotide therapies. And then if they can, then they will find a cure for that person and they will develop the medicine, they will develop the treatment plan, they will go to FDA and get the, uh, all of the regulatory approvals and do everything they can to treat that one person. So I, I find him amazing that he is doing this, that he has donated his own money to this cause, you know, he's donated ten million dollars of his own money um, for this foundation, and he's doing this because he feels that it, it he he has a moral obligation to to help these people. I so I find him to be a hero, um, and it's really encouraging to see that there are people out there like him. Um, and of course, he loves his job, so he's he's you know he gets a lot out of it too. So I think those are those are people that I admire for, for many different reasons, but I think there's a lot of great, great scientists out there.
1: Thank you. Those were some wonderful choices. Okay. So with that question, that wraps up our podcast. So thank you so much for coming on it. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
2: Um, and yeah, that's it. Okay, great. Thanks so much. A pleasure to speak with both of you all. Good luck with your podcasts. Thank you bye bye
1: oh you're
0: muted dr ramsey you still here yeah oh my god dr ramsey thank you so much like pleasure really love how you discuss about your work and really how you like encourage other new students to get involved like to get in touch with the upper year student and like to explore yourself it's like that is a challenging that we meet like everyone like in underground meet like you was like straight to the point about it and like that is what's impressive like whoa like <laughs> and i really love how you mentioned several of the researchers because i love how you not limit to one but like expired yeah. by many that is what like student have like should focus on to be like grab the most from many people rather than That's just right. focus on one it's like really nice and like overall podcast was amazing. Like, Good. Thank you so
2: much. Good. For it was like, my it. pleasure. <laughs> Good. Well, I can't wait to see it. I think what you're doing is great and I so I, I haven't yet gone to look and see what other podcasts you've done, but I am definitely going to do that. Um, I think it's a great idea.
0: Thank you. Uh, we would like ask you to send us recording that you record on okay your phone, yeah yeah and a photo that we're going to post our social media with okay. you to like uh, produce not produce promote our podcast okay and as well when the podcast is going to be released we're going to send you
2: a link to you to watch it okay great okay that'll be fun okay so i will stop this recording now okay and I will, um, I will email that to you. I've already emailed you the release and good luck with your editing. <laughs> just
0: last, last thing. Sorry, uh-huh. just one thing. Uh, now have that the recording's
1: good. done, I had a quick question. It...
0: Go ahead, Jessica, I'm
1: sorry. Sorry, the internet connection is like unstable. Um, yeah, so I had a quick question. There was one question in the beginning where you started talking about how when you're studying mouse models it doesn't translate that well because the brain is different um brain is a different organ for humans um the is it like the the whole brain that's different or is it that the disease like the the ones that you are studying the like schizophrenia autism grins disease is it that those present themselves so differently in humans is that what it like is that why it doesn't translate well
2: Well, you know, at the kind of, at the cellular level, a mouse neuron is not that different from a human neuron. So it's really, I think the way that they're connected and, and just the number of neurons. I mean, like our brains are bigger, so we can do more calculations, you know? And, and I think part of it is just that the brain is designed to suit the needs of that organism. So What the activities that humans do, like, you know, even if you just think about the types of foods that we eat, the the way we get our food, the way we um, find a mate, all the things that we need to do to survive, how important social interactions are for a human versus a mouse. I mean, they are social, but they're not as social as humans. And um, the way they get food, you know, they are prey. They have to be very careful about um, being out in the open, and um, you know they're nocturnal. We're diurnal. There's a lot. There's just a lot of differences in the in these organisms, and the brain is adapted to help that organism do what they do. So we do different things, and um, no one does what humans do. Like there's no brain that's going to do what we do. So. Um, and if if there's one that's close we sure wouldn't want to be experimenting on them you know yeah so, yeah i think it has to do with the number of cells and the way they're connected
1: okay thank you so yeah. much for that insight yeah, sure. i was curious because a lot of times when i like look at different labs or like research in neuro whether it's like neurofarm or something else um yeah mouse models are quite common like quite common of an appearance from what I've right. gathered oh yeah yeah um so I was just interested to see that
2: yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well thank you again we wish okay. you a really good wonderful day
2: <laughs> thank you you too both of you <laughs> bye. thank you so
0: much bye-bye, bye-bye. okay
2: bye. bye thank you